If you have a Bible, you can open it to the last psalm, Psalm 150. Um, Hallelujah. It's that exuberant Hebrew word that means praise Yah, praise Yahweh, um, praise the Lord, as you see it in all caps there in your Bibles. That word appears several times in Psalm 150. It's the last of all psalms. And some of you might feel like shouting, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, we've reached the end of the psalms. Uh, Joking aside, though, I hope that this series has um, helped you or maybe inspired you to uh, to actually return to the psalms and use them more in your prayer life in Christ rather than making you feel like you need a break from the psalms for a while. Uh, uh, Glad to move on to something else. But here we are at the end of our series. And I, for one, can certainly imagine no better ending to the Psalms than Psalm 150. Uh, It might not look like much to you when you're just looking at it. But God arranged for the arrangement of the Psalms so that they would end on this note. And I think that there's something wonderful to be discovered in that, that the end is praise. The end is praise. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's read the Psalm. We're actually going to read it together. Um, I printed it in the worship guide in such a way that you can, uh, you can chime in on each of the 13 times that there's some variation of that Hebrew word, hallelujah. You can see it there in the bold and italics. Uh, that'll be your part, the bold italic part, and I'll read the rest. Hopefully that makes sense to you. And uh, it's not just italics, it's bold italics. So fortissimo. All right. <clears throat> um, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would lift up our hearts and make us able to praise you as this psalm calls us to do. We pray that you would change us from the inside out by your spirit to make us uh, know your word, to hear it with faith, to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you ready? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Praise Him in His mighty heavens. For His mighty deeds. According to His excellent greatness. With trumpet sound. With lute and harp. With tambourine and dance. With strings and pipe. With sounding cymbals. With loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was fun. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, The last several psalms in the Psalter share this theme, this theme of praise. I've been thinking about uh, ending up our series in the psalms by taking a few of them together today, uh, some of the last psalms, but figured that probably would be too much for us to walk through. Nevertheless... Uh, I think it needs to be mentioned, something about them anyway, uh, because they really do form a conclusion to the Psalms together. And I think it starts in Psalm 145. We did 146 last week, skipped 145, and I feel bad about doing that, <clears throat> uh, as I felt about skipping all of them. But uh, Psalm 145 is sort of the beginning of the end of the Psalms. If you want to turn there, you can, it's fine. I'm just going to mention it briefly. It's the last one that is attributed to David. Um, And it's entitled, A Song of Praise. 
That's there in the Hebrew sort of header to that psalm. It's a psalm of David, and it's a song of praise. It's a psalm of the king of praise. And it's, a, it's an acrostic, Psalm 145 is. It's an acrostic, which means that each verse begins with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And an acrostic, that, that sort of pattern, that sort of uh, use of um, structure in the Hebrew poetry indicates wholeness. The, the theme is be, being treated with wholeness or a sense of completion. Right? And we've seen that before, so that doesn't necessarily indicate anything new. But Psalm 145 is also an anthology. It's also an anthology of the whole book of the Psalms. It gathers up quotes, it gathers up phrases, and it collects all kinds of language that should be familiar to us uh, because we've found it throughout the whole Psalter up to this point. The Psalms give expression, uh, the whole book of Psalms, they, they all give expression to the whole range of human experience. That's one reason why they're tremendously fantastic for us. You can't have a human experience, an emotional experience, a prayerful experience that isn't somehow shaped by the Psalms or discussed by the Psalms. <clears throat> the, the Psalms give an expression to the whole range of human experience. And Psalm 145 sums it all up under the header of praise. And that helps us to make sense, actually, of the original Hebrew title for the book of Psalms. It's, the word in Hebrew is tehillim, which is praises. When you read through the Psalms, you might not think praises entirely, but here at the end, I think you have the idea that all of the Psalms really are summed up in these praises, and that's a fitting title for the book. And then, after 145, each of the rest of the psalms that follow until the end, so 146 through 150, are called the Hallelujah Psalms because they each begin with Hallelujah, praise the Lord, and end with Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So they have these Hallelujah bookends to each of the psalms, 146 through 150. And We haven't really talked about it over the course of the series much, but the book of Psalms is actually composed of five books. It's seen as uh, there being five books of Psalms in this one larger uh, compilation or collection of Psalms. Each book ends with a verse of praise. For example, in in, uh, chapter 42, verse 13, it ends this way, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And you find similar single-verse endings to each of the five books of the Psalms. You see that in uh, Psalms 72, 89, and 106. And then here in Psalm 50, at the end of book five, really at the end of the whole Psalter, the whole Psalm is a call to praise the Lord. And it's clearly placed here as sort of a grand finale to all the prayer songs. It's a grand finale. So... Uh, I I thought I'd quote uh, at length from Eugene Peterson. And this is on the front cover of the bulletin for you if you want to follow along in his book on the Psalms. He says this, The end of prayer is praise. The Psalms show praise as the end of prayer in both meanings of the word, the word end. The terminus, the last word in the final Psalm 150, And the goal at which all the psalm prayers arrive after their long travels 
through the unmapped back countries of pain, doubt, and trouble, with only occasional vistas of the sunlit lands along the way. All prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. Praise is the consummating prayer. Praise is the consummating prayer. The Psalms are given to us, all of them, so that we can know how human beings are meant to live with God, how to relate to God, how to speak to God, how to communicate with God in the name of God's King, in the name of God's Messiah, the Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. And when the Psalms sum up that relationship, which has all these facets that we've discussed throughout our series in the Psalms, when the Psalms sum up that relationship, all is praise. Praise is the consummation of our prayers. Praise is the consummation of our relationship with God in the name of Jesus Christ. Thirteen times you read it. Thirteen times the call to praise rings out in this grand finale. Each time it's in the plural. You all praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary in verse 1. So the psalm begins, it begins with a miracle. It begins with a miracle of God's grace that there is anybody at all in God's sanctuary to give him praise. Right? Ever since the sin of our first parents in the garden sanctuary, which led to God expelling sinful humanity from his presence, ever since then, our desperate need has been to return, to get back into the sanctuary, to have our sins atoned for, to have our relationship with God restored and made right. That's what the whole Bible's about. That's what all the history that's recorded in the scriptures, the redemptive history of God's working with his special people, That's what that is all about. The people of God, upon whom he has set his saving love, his grace, his mercy, have had the special privilege of entering into his sanctuary. Even though we're sinners. We have that privilege. It's a miracle of grace that anybody is here at all. But that's, it's a miracle that has taken place. The books of Exodus And Leviticus, there at the beginning of the scriptures, they address the construction of the sanctuary. Um, That pattern that Moses saw, the pattern of what heaven is like in God's presence, that pattern that he uh, he wrote down as uh, the the plans for uh, the construction of the tabernacle. Right? So the place where God's glory dwells, the place where sacrifice for sin is brought, the place where atonement is made, and people can be restored into God's presence and brought back into the sanctuary. It's that tabernacle. And so in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Chronicles 16, when King David places the ark of the presence of Yahweh into the tabernacle, into the tent that he's prepared in the city of God's people in Jerusalem, he appoints Levites. He appoints Levites. It's the, these are the special priestly tribe of the people of Israel. He appoints them to minister before the Lord. It says to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. 
and to do so, it says in First Chronicles 16, to do so with many of the same instruments that we find listed in Psalm 150. Right? So musical praise is priestly work. It's the kind of thing done now, not by the Levites in a tent, but by all of us as the priesthood of all believers. Musical praise. So praise God in his sanctuary. That's here. That's right now. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So this is a call to the people who stand in God's presence, who are forgiven, who are redeemed, who are sanctified by the blood of the true sacrifice brought into the sanctuary, by Jesus' blood. So that, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10, we may have confidence to enter the holy places, the sanctuary. It's a call to the church of Jesus Christ made able to enter God's presence together by the blood of Jesus, brought into the sanctuary, and not just brought into the sanctuary, but actually made the new sanctuary. We're made the new temple. We're made the new dwelling place of God by His Spirit on the earth. Or it's a call to those who are blessed to have um, gone into His glorious presence in heaven. So it's a call to offer up a sacrifice of praise through faith in Jesus and in the name of Jesus, like it says in Hebrews 13. That's what this psalm is. It's a call to come in the name of Jesus Christ to offer up a sacrifice of praise in his sanctuary, in his presence. Praise him for his mighty deeds, verse 2. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. So this psalm doesn't have petitions in it. You may have noticed. Praise is beyond those, in a sense. Praise is beyond the prayers where we ask God to act, where we ask God to do something, where we ask God to give us something. Praise is beyond that. Praise is the response of those who know what he has done, who have seen how he's acted, who celebrate him simply for who he is, simply for who he is. Can you imagine actually being able to praise him according to his abundant greatness, actually giving him the praise that he deserves for who he is. That's probably something like saying, hey, make a mirror big enough to, uh, so that the entire universe can be captured in its reflection. Right? Uh, it would be a universe-sized mirror. That's impossible. Right? How can finite creatures properly respond to God according to his infinite worth. That's what the psalm's calling us to. I guess we'll have eternity to figure that out. Verse 3, praise him with trumpet sound. The trumpet here, it isn't the brass instrument you might be familiar with. Uh, I think a few of you have played before uh, during our worship services. It's the shofar, right? It's a ram's horn. Uh, It can be used to make musical notes and song, uh, but... It first appears in the Bible in Exodus chapter 19 when God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. He'd rescued them. He'd saved them from Egypt. And he brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there it says there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people trembled. It was such a frightening image and sound experience that they actually said, Moses, you go ahead and talk to God. 
we don't want to hear this ever again. <laughs> uh, we don't, this is too much for us. Uh, it's that very loud trumpet blast. And then, according to God's law in Leviticus 25, every 50 years on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement was an annual thing, but every 50 days of atonement, every 50 years, the, the people were to sound a loud trumpet, the same as ram's horn, the shofar, to mark the consecration of the year of jubilee. It was the year of liberty and redemption of, of slaves and property, a great year celebrating freedom. In Joshua, as the people marched around the enemy city of Jericho, the priests blew a blast from this horn. We all know that the walls of the city fell down. Looking to the future, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord Jesus will return from heaven with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will be raised. So the trumpet is an instrument for gathering the troops for battle. Trumpet is an instrument for announcing the arrival of the king, for festival celebration, for dramatically getting attention. It isn't known as a subtle instrument. You've really got to sort of adjust it to make it subtle in any sense of that word. It's a powerful instrument used to call and to awaken and to stir and to challenge and to proclaim. Praise music in the Lord's sanctuary should do all these things. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Uh, tambourine and dance often appear together, actually, uh, in the scriptures. In the ancient world, uh, it sounds like women would... Um, uh, the references in the uh, scriptures are actually mostly to women, or entirely. Uh, women would carry tambourines, or they would wear them somehow. I don't know if that means putting a big one around their neck or wearing little mini tambourines so that as they danced, the tambourines would sound. Um, but you have examples of that in Exodus 15. Miriam, after the Lord's triumph over Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, uh, with tambourine and dance celebrating, and then Judges 11, Jephthah's daughter, seeing her father return victorious in battle. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, women go out to meet the king coming home from battle. A celebration of, of victory. Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy that says, again, um, after the judgment of God's people, again, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. It's going to happen again. So dancing is a display of gleeful abandon. Maybe you sense that. Maybe like me, you're not much of a dancer. <laughs> and you think, that's too much gleeful abandon. Um, <clears throat> David danced with all his might before the Lord, and it, it struck his wife as a silly, frivolous thing to do, irresponsible. Not kingly, not the sort of thing that weighty, important people do. Dancing is not for the reserved. Dancing is not for the self-conscious. Which is why you might never see me dancing in public. I'll dance at home and I'll be ridiculous with the kids with the curtains drawn. But I'll just tell you, one of the most scarring experiences of my life was at a friend's birthday party at a Moroccan restaurant where the, the gypsy belly dancer grabbed me out of my seat and made me dance around the center of the room. <laughs> it was the worst. It was a nightmare. <clears throat> This psalm is a call to gleeful abandon. 
in praise, to be free to be fools for the Lord's sake. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. I imagine these cymbals um, being used here to make the two sounds. I don't know if there's any cymbals around, but first you get that light shimmering sound made by, you know, sort of rubbing them together. And then you get a loud clanging sound as they're clashed together. It's like, you know, I think that's what it's saying. And there's a definite sense of climax that you get out of the use of symbols. Uh, These are all instruments used in temple worship in ancient Israel. And they were intended for the same purpose then as they are intended now. That's to accompany our voices. To bring some fun to our voices. To give some extra oomph to our voices as we're singing to the Lord. Verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. For the first time um, we see this word breath in the scripture, you might be thinking of it, is Genesis 2, verse 7. When Yahweh formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The breath of life. This is life. The life of human beings created in God's image, the life of God himself, who is the Holy Spirit. Spirit, that word meaning breath. He's the Holy Breath himself. So for us to have breath means that we have life like God has life. We have God's own life in us. Our breath is not stockpiled. I don't know if you've thought of it before, but it's not like a set of bagpipes where you blow a bunch in and you save it up and you store it up. Our breath is not stockpiled. Our breath must be drawn in and renewed constantly before it's exhaled in speech and in song and in praise. We're always receiving our life from God in order to return our life to God. The human voice which is fueled by that breath, is the, is the most wonderful instrument of all for praising the Lord. It's the most wonderful instrument of all. Singers might lament the inconvenient necessity of finding a place in the song to take a breath and might really try hard to breathe without others noticing. I think that's not supposed to be part of what you hear in the song. People hearing you breathe. but there's a deep beauty in our breath. Our breath is a reminder that God created us, that without His own life in us, we would not be. We would be nothing. That we are dependent upon Him at every moment, even when we're not concentrating on the fact. Ultimately, we need to draw in God's own breath like, like holy bellows breathing in the life of God, in the Holy Spirit, being made truly alive and having the capacity to sing His praises. The psalm is a call to all peoples everywhere to enter into God's sanctuary, to come into the church, 
to join the people of God in the name of Jesus Christ, to receive the gift of life, the breath, the Spirit of God, to breathe Him in, in order to praise God for who He is and what He has done for us. Be filled with the Spirit and make all kinds of noises and sing your songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God as we've read in our New Testament reading. And we do this most gloriously right here when we get together and we make music and we sing. Praising God with our singing breath, with our instruments, our little contraptions that make pretty noises, it might seem too non-essential to be glorious. Right? Isn't making music just a leisure activity? Some of us might have time for that. Isn't it something to be done in your spare time after the, the really important work is done? Singing and making music. No one would say that it's a necessary part of life in order to survive. Maybe you see music as unnecessary, and that's precisely where it's most glorious. Because ultimately, it's just fun. It's just extra. It doesn't have to happen. And after all, that describes the point of the whole world. It's extra. It didn't have to happen. That's the eternal destiny of God's people. Altogether gratuitous celebration. Yes, praise is the proper response. It's the proper response to God's grace and His majesty. It's the human response that truly accords to His excellent greatness, that is commensurate with His excellent greatness. But that's just it. The proper response to who God is and to what He has done for us in the gospel is to get happy. It's to get exuberant maybe a bit silly and rowdy, to start making all sorts of noises, loud startling noises, and shout and sing and dance with gleeful abandon, that's the proper response to who God is and what He's done. The great God evokes this response. Invent some little contraptions that make funny sounds, beautiful sounds. Devote yourselves to regularly practicing with these instruments. You're going to have to invest in that Use these instruments to help people lift up their hearts and to lift up their voices and sing praise to the Lord. The ultimate glory of human life, the ultimate glory, is in sheer gratuitous celebration. And that's the clearest reflection of the image of the triune God in which we were created. The only alternative view of human life is one of meaningless, dreary, inescapable slavery. But the gospel tells us a much more wonderful story of humanity, the end for which we were created, and the vision of the last things that we find in the scriptures, really throughout the scriptures, is a new world 
where we're all there in spite of ourselves, where God's sheer grace frees everyone to delight to just hop around like fools, singing God's praises together, chanting, warbling, caroling, trilling, yodeling. Ridiculous. A new life where the real craft of our hands is tinkering with wood and metal and strings, making and playing instruments just for the fun and beauty of it all. Because remember, you don't, you don't work instruments. You don't operate instruments. You play instruments. In the end, we'll all be playing and singing praise to the Lord in Christ. Praise is the consummation of the whole world. And one of the best ways we can testify to that, that joyful thought, that hope, is by learning to play and sing praise to the Lord now, here in our worship. Imagine the God whose grace, the God whose majesty, call forth such a hilarious response for all eternity. It's fantastic. That's where all our prayers are headed. Whatever hard, dark roads we must uh, all walk along the way, whatever terrible, desperate prayers we struggle to pray, this grand finale of the Psalms stands as a call to praise, sheer gratuitous celebration, and it stands as a promise, really, that your life with God in Christ and all your prayers will consummate with praise. So in the immortal and most excellent words of those who have seen the future, party on, dudes. Hallelujah forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it does strike many of us as uh, too good to be true, this idea that all eternity would be defined as the, the proper response to your greatness are just hopping around like fools and singing and dancing forever. We pray that you would set us free from all the constraints that would prevent that. We pray that you would set us free from all of our sin, all of our worries, our guilt, the idea that we would enter into your presence and be condemned, all of our self-consciousness. We pray that you would fill our vision in such a way that it would bring forth this response, not just in eternity, as we are looking forward to that, but even now, we pray that you would help us to respond to you in a way that is um, appropriate to who you are and to what you've done for us, and that means song and dance. We pray that you would fill up the worship in this place in such a way that, um, that your presence can be declared, your presence can be felt and known that people who experience the worship uh, in this sanctuary would also join us in praising the Lord, that they would see people who are set free in our relationship with you in the name of Jesus Christ, and they would say, that that sounds good. We pray that you would be uh, not just honored, but that you would delight in our praises. We pray that you'd make us the kind of people who do that in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.